but I was cutting an avocado at, at that moment that I'm listening to the to the episode on NPR, to the show on NPR, and on the avocado it said hecho in Mexico, right? Which which is made in Mexico. And I was thinking to myself, like, wow, you know, all these policies, these racist policies around Mexicans and stopping Mexicans from coming, if I were the Mexican government, I'd shut down my avocado trade with the United States, right? Because who wants to trade with a partner that spews hate or a partner that demonizes, you know, your people and things of that nature? And so I thought, well, I wish more Americans saw the direct connection between avocados and policy, right? And and our everyday lived experiences. If I didn't have those avocados, you know, I wouldn't be able to have my fancy sandwich. <laughs> From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm Jasmine DeLeon, your guest interview host and the executive director and producer of this podcast. Today, I am so excited to interview Bumi Akinisotu, a leader in foreign policy and the current deputy director of the Wrangell Fellowship at Howard University. Thank you so much, Jasmine. It's so good to be here. My name is Bumia Kinesotu, and I'm a foreign policy enthusiast. I've worked in lots of spaces. I'm passionate about people being as excited as you are about these issues, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yes, and thank you so much for coming on today. So something that I found really striking and fascinating about your career is how you're a leader and so well-rounded in many sectors of foreign policy, from your nonprofit work empowering women and limiting racism, to being a special assistant at the EPA, the chief of staff at Young Professionals in Foreign Policy. And on top of all of that, you launched a successful podcast. So what are some of your takeaways and lessons from working in multiple fields? Great question. So I'll maybe just give three quick ones. The first is technology and staying on top of the the technological skills. And I don't necessarily mean social media, but making sure that you or one knows how to translate data, analyze data, obviously calculate things using all the software, you know, basic Microsoft Excel skills. You'll be surprised how many people are freaked out by Excel, Microsoft Excel. And I always joke that I'm always going to have a job because there'll always be people who don't know how to use formulas in Excel. (laughs) So, So I think that what has been common throughout all of my jobs is an ability to utilize technology to tell a story or to do analysis or to present information to people that I'm working with. The second thing has to do with courage and not being afraid to, you know, dipple and dabble in different things. I think that, well, maybe there are some people still this way, but I, I think the majority of us, myself and yourself included, are a generation of folks who we're not going to stay in a job for 25 years if we're lucky, maybe 10, but <laughs> but we are definitely a generation of folks who should be on their toes and ready to sort of put their experiences and skills into different sectors, whether it's the nonprofit, higher ed, corporate, you know, so you have to sort of be professionally flexible, as I tell my, you know, mentees to be able to be useful or to be able to contribute to different places. And I think we see that now in the tech space with the layoffs from, you know, Google and Amazon. A lot of those individuals are going to be out here looking for work and 
hopefully they've been able to find ways in their personal or professional lives to to mix it up a little bit and and build different skills and experiences. And then the final thing I would say is about traveling. Traveling abroad is really important. I did some travel abroad, not as much as I would like for professional reasons, but I think that the global experience is what shapes a really sharp professional. And when I was, you know, maybe in middle school or high school, I remember one of my computer teachers saying, the wave of the future, you know, is technology. Everything's going to be driven by technology. And so, you know, he hammered into us learning Microsoft Excel and Word and PowerPoint Mm -hmm. and all of that at a very young age. And I say that the same thing is true for travel and international experience, that having a global mindset, having cultural competency, intercultural competencies, being able to work with people who don't believe what you believe or speak the way you speak or come from where you come from, that is going to be the way, well, it is already the way of the future. And that's how people, or I think that's how I've been able to be successful across my many fields is that I can adapt to different environments and different types of people. That's really interesting. What you said about leveraging technology is something that I've heard as um, Mm -hmm. a young professional. So What are creative ways foreign policy professionals can leverage technology Mm -hmm. and media to make an impact? Doing what you're doing wonderfully, uh, a podcast is, I think, nowadays a pretty easy thing to do. And even if you, again, don't end up on NPR or on the radio, I think just getting the practice of speaking your voice, using the technology to build a story, doing research, you know, asking questions, being curious, right? All of those skills I consider quote unquote technical because you're you're taking, you know, something, you're taking information that's out there and you're trying to compile it in a way that makes sense for a particular audience. There's also LinkedIn Learning. They're not paying me to say this, but I love LinkedIn Learning. Um, Here in Washington, D.C., as a resident, we actually get LinkedIn Premium as part of the public library system. So if you are a member of your public library, which I think everybody should be, uh, check to see if your public library offers that as a benefit to residents. I think it's like $44 a month if you try to pay for it. But LinkedIn Learning has tons and tons of modules on using Excel, on analysis, on writing, on graphs and charts. So I think that that's an an important way. And of course, if you're in school, if you're enrolled in school, taking those courses, those business courses, the management courses, where you'll have to interface with those technologies is very important. But if you're not in school, if you're just out of school or it's been a few years, I think there's lots and lots of public information available for free. And maybe you can take a course here or there at a low price to build those sort of technological skills. I'm going to go back to what you said about podcasting because Mm -hmm. The Global Current is a student-run podcast with a focus Mm -hmm. on international relations. So can you please tell our listeners about your podcast, What in the Mm -hmm. World, and how did it come to be? Yeah, so What in the World is a foreign policy podcast. It makes it understandable and relevant for everyday folks. And what's special about it is that it amplifies the expertise of experts of color, those who often are not asked 
for their knowledge and for their insights when it comes to global issues. So I wanted to be that space where one could, you know, if you were an expert at Brookings or you used to work for the government and you know about, you know, trade and China, I wanted that person to come on my show to talk about what was happening in the world. And the beginning of that came in 2017 when I was listening to NPR and was really bothered by some of the things that people were saying about, for example, the Muslim ban and about the border wall with Mexico. And I wanted to do something. I didn't know what, but I was cutting an avocado at at that moment that I'm listening to the to the episode on NPR, to the show on NPR. And on the avocado, it said hecho in Mexico, right? Which which is made in Mexico. And I was thinking to myself, like, wow, you know, all these policies, these racist policies around Mexicans and stopping Mexicans from coming. If I were the Mexican government, I'd shut down my avocado trade with the United States, right? Because who wants to trade with a partner that spews hate or a partner that demonizes, you know, your people and things of that nature? And so I thought, well, I wish more Americans saw the direct connection between avocados and policy, right? And and our everyday lived experiences. If I didn't have those avocados, you know, I wouldn't be able to have my fancy sandwich. <laughs> and, so, and so I just sat on, fortunately through a relative who put me onto a local radio station here in DC, I sat on the path of just learning how to do what you're doing, which is to put together story, ask questions, edit, um, and how to find speakers and uh, just present my information in a in a clear, compelling, understandable way. Avocados in Mexico, that's a great symbol. Can you just elaborate, how did you find the stories to cover on your podcast? How did you find the people that you wanted to interview? The stories came from what was happening in the world and things that I myself was interested in understanding. Like, I didn't do an episode on this, but it's still something that I think about, which is I wanted the first episode to be about the history of U.S. passports or just passports in general. Why do we have passports? There is a story, there is a history around them. And all of it has to do with how nation states were developed over time, right? And being able to tell like, who are my people? Who are your people? So it's a political tool, it's it's a political device. I mean, now we don't think about it as such, we just use it. But a lot of my stories or my topics came from my own curiosity. And then of course, things happening in the world. So when the Trump administration pulled out of the Paris Agreement, I wanted to talk with people about what does that mean for us? What was in the Paris Agreement? Why is it important for us on a regular basis? Why is it problematic to pull out? Why is it problematic to not pull out, right? So when we, when the Trump administration again tightened up travel to Cuba. I think that that's a topic that a lot of Americans have been exposed to one way or another, probably in a very sort of one-dimensional way, that it's a communist country, so therefore we're, you know, you know, we're not friendly with communist countries, but we have a very rich history with Cuba. So I wanted to explore that and to talk about why President Obama opened it up and what are some of the nuanced 
policy measures or history points that have shaped our relationship with Cuba. And it's not just about communism. There's lots of other things. So the guests for all of my shows came from a combination of my own network, research online. And then as I started to mature as an interviewer, I started to look more so for personalities because I learned that sometimes when people get behind a mic, they can turn into like like press release mode, right? Or press mm-hmm. mode, right? Like they yeah. they sound very scripted, they get monotone, they kind of lose their personality. <laughs> um, and so I started to be mindful of, you know, those things. And so I would do like maybe like a little bit of pre-interviewing or early conversations with people just to kind of test out what their energy was like mm-hmm. and how they spoke. But you never know because behind a microphone, you hit record, you don't know what's going to happen with people. So, but I loved it. It was definitely, even when I had somebody who was maybe not shy, but just a very uh, sort of started to get into like government mode get a little too serious, it forced me to, you know, use my personality to try to bring out a little bit of, not fun, but a little bit of levity with the conversation. So yeah, Twitter was, when I was on Twitter more heavily, Twitter was great. I would follow lots of different people and, and people love to talk. And so I actually didn't find it very difficult to get guests. In fact, I had, once I stopped the podcast, I, I had even more people like reaching out wanting to be on the show. So I had no problems finding talent, which actually is telling because when they talk about diversity and foreign policy, everybody's always like, I can't find the diverse people. And I'm like, actually, that's not accurate. You can find them. You're just choosing not to do your research. So. And is there a particular story that challenged you the most in all Mm. the podcasts that you did? That's a good question. I think actually the episode that was challenging was the Middle East episode and democracy. It was challenging for a couple of reasons. The first reason was because I didn't feel confident in, I wanted to talk about one thing but I wasn't confident enough that I could talk about it smartly, if that makes sense. So what I wanted to talk about was the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That is a very sensitive, sensitive, I mean, people's careers have been blown up because they are one way or another pro-Israel or or pro-Palestine. And I, I have thoughts on the thing, on the topic, and I did my research And yet I was still a little hesitant about taking the conversation with my guest in that direction. So what we ended up doing was talking about democracy and why democracy matters and particularly why it matters for the Middle East, which is a different conversation. So one, the conversation didn't feel authentic because it's not what I wanted to talk about, but I did it anyways. And two, I think that my guest was great. She was very knowledgeable. But it started to get a little wonky because I think when people talk about the Middle East, it's kind of the general direction they by habit tend to go. So that was a challenging conversation to make fun and or or to make sort of relevant uh, because it's so sensitive. And I really didn't want to do that conversation. I wanted to talk about something else. So there was a lesson learned in that as well. And how did it how did you decide to go toward democracy in that conversation? 
and because I was afraid to talk about Israel Palestine. Mm-hmm. So I thought, what's the safest conversation to have? Well, we'll talk about why democracy matters. What is democracy? And that felt safe. And it it kept me far enough away from the Israel Palestine issue. But I I mean it turned out fine, but I think creatively I did myself a disservice and I probably did listeners a disservice by staying safe. And like, was that something that you, you faced when covering other stories that were very sensitive, like balancing different perspectives while also building yourself as, as a credible host, who's not Mm -hmm. maybe biased or not one way or another? Yeah, absolutely. That was my intention from the beginning, but you quickly realize that what your intentions are and what actually happens when you start doing your research (laughs) are two different things. And so, yes, I, but I did try to work, even picking guests who were not of the same political party or political viewpoint, I would say, because even if I picked someone who, or if I knew someone was like left-leaning or Democrat, we might still have different views on certain things, right? In fact, I know for a fact that there were certain people who I just had different views on, on certain topics. I, definitely try to do research that that gave me information on as many as possible perspectives on a particular issue. I think one topic that I was really sensitive about was back when we were having the quote-unquote trade war with China um, and the price of beef or something like that was like through the roof and whatever. And this, of course, was the before the pandemic. And I was very mindful that we were not or I was not asking questions that demonized the Chinese. Because again, and this is before the pandemic, so I I was very sensitive to the fact that China is a sensitive place, but it's also, we're very hypocritical with our policy toward China. On the one hand, everything we have, if you were to look in your room or your place, probably like 90% of the things you have come from China. But on the other hand, we say things about China and Chinese people that I think paint them in a in a particularly damning light. And yet we still trade with them. And so I tried to be very mindful that I stuck to the policy. You know, I stuck to the role of the IMF or the role of, sorry, the role the role of the World Trade Organization and mitigating or addressing issues of trade differences between or trade disputes between countries, right? I tried to make sure that I remain, I presented the topics or the institutions and the players as they are without sort of saying, and the Chinese are cheating and the Chinese are, you know, trying to undermine the, the the global economy, right? I I just didn't feel like that was helpful. I didn't want to be the one to contribute to that to- type of tone. So that episode in particular, I recall, I tried to, you know, just be careful with how I spoke about the Chinese trade practices. So were you seeing people in the government and also in media outlets creating a tone that might not have been yeah necessary for just yeah if you look at the if you look at even some of the language one of the episodes I did was on the national security strategy from 2018 with ambassador Bonnie Jenkins 
And if you look at that strategy that came under the Trump administration, and I went in thinking like, oh, this thing is going to be a mess, right? It's going to be, and it was, like it was very like combative, not hateful, combative. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese and the Russians are are in there, you know, as adversaries. And, you know, it's very strong language about the United States' position about defending, you know, the world from communism and from China and, you know, Russian infiltration and all of this. And I thought that that was only unique to the Trump administration until I looked at the national security strategy in previous <laughs> administrations. And it was more or less the same type of tone, maybe with like lighter language, but it's still very much pointed to China as the chief adversary of the United States that needed to be, you know, dealt with in some kind of way and sort of the threat of China or Russian aggression and what that means for American global leadership, right? It was the same, it's the same tone, same spirit, maybe slightly less <laughs> harmful language. And who do you think that your audience was in yeah. your podcast? Great question. So in the beginning, I'll be honest, I did not have a science or a method to figuring out audience. I just talked I just was like, whoever wants to listen and learn, which is probably, you know, a fewer than people who want to listen and learn about, say, like relationships and dating. Right. So <laughs> I just went into it like whoever wants to listen will listen. Now, now, as I, again, learned the art of podcasting and radio and learning about uh, all the different platforms where the show was sitting. I could refine that a little bit. And I, I would take like sessions with PRX, which is a podcast um, organization. I took sessions with PRX about, about audience engagement and such. And I was like, oh, okay. So I can actually look at data to see. And, and it's sure enough, my audience was a little older. So they were between the ages of like 25 and I think like 50 or something or early 50s working professionals and people who had grad uh, undergrad degree so they they were they were college educated individuals and i was pleased with that there's no problem with that it did help me change though how i marketed my podcast cuz that meant that i would use things like linkedin um, more so than Facebook. So I, I focused heavily on LinkedIn for spreading the word about my episode because I was like, the, that's like the working age population, basically white collar Amer America, right? On LinkedIn and probably on Twitter. So I use, I focused heavily on Twitter and LinkedIn to get the word out. And once I had a little bit more bandwidth, I started a newsletter. And so folks could sign up to the newsletter and receive information that way about new episodes. And I, I really initially wanted, like, I pictured like, you know, a barber listening to my podcast. I pictured like, you know, a nurse listening, you know, and I, I don't know if they if they do, but I realized that that wasn't necessarily the, the demographic that I was catching with my show. I was catching people who, you know, were, were, were in their day-to-day -day lives in some way touching on, you know, global issues more so than somebody who was like cutting hair or doing nails, although that's actually who I wanted to reach. It's just a little harder to figure out how to reach those populations. Well, based on your career too, how do you think that 
professionals who aren't in foreign policy can get involved or educate themselves in foreign policy? Do you have any ideas or have you heard of any? Yeah, of course. Um, so I don't get it. I mean, outside of getting a degree, but I think podcasts like yours, like mine, like many others that are out there. Now there's so many, so many more podcasts. CFR has a great podcast. I think it's called Why It Matters. Started theirs shortly after mine. There's Brookings has a great podcast. I think uh, obviously uh, Pod Saves the World is interesting. And so I would say for people who are already in the space, more than likely your favorite think tank probably has a podcast. So look, you know, their end platform that I read regularly is Foreign Policy Magazine. Their articles, I haven't listened to their podcasts, but I do like their printed articles. I find the the printed narrative pieces to be really good and helpful. They were particularly helpful or I would say compelling in 2020 during the height of the pandemic and during the George Floyd murder, they put out a lot of pieces about, you know, the intersection of foreign policy and race. And that's not something that this sector talks about, but it needs to because it, there's there's a strong a connection there. So yeah, Foreign Policy Magazine is great. And I, I do think that the professional organizations, right? So what, uh, what young professionals in foreign policy, if your school has one, joining those. If your community has one, I am a huge fan, again, of like public resources, like public libraries mm-hmm. are not something that I think younger generations grew up on, but they are treasure troves of informal networks, diverse people who are moms, dads, older, younger, educated, not educated, who get together and just like have conversations about what's happening in the world. You know, and I think that's a lost part of our society. It's just like talking to people who you don't know, who don't share the same views as you, just having a a, a discussion, a debate or a healthy debate (laughs) about these. And at least here in D.C., again, we're fortunate to have a library system that's robust in its offerings and informal sort of meetups with people, which another aspect is meetup, meetup meetup.com, also a great place to connect with people around all different kinds of hobbies and interests, whether it's podcasting, foreign policy, childcare, whatever. There's <laughs> all kinds of groups. So yeah, one thing I would say that I, I wish for foreign policy professionals early in their career to do is to get out. Get out, like get out of your comfort zone, get out of your community, talk, like talk to people face to face. The value of, like, I don't think we would have had our connection had I not come to Seton Hall, right? Like, and actually saw you and met you and sat with you. And that does wonders for how you develop relationships and how you come to understand why people believe what they believe. I kind of wanted to talk about just, you know, your work engaging with specific people. So, like, you have worked in so many sectors and in many different kinds of teams. How do you empower and work Mm. together? How do you support every person that you're leading and every person that you're working with? Well, it depends, right? If you're talking about my day-to-day job working at Howard, I well, actually across the board, I try to be human with people, particularly in the last couple of years. It's been rough. I'm very sensitive to the fact that now I work with colleagues who half of their college career was done behind a computer and was interrupted by this very scary situation 
called, you know, COVID-19. So I'm very sensitive to that. I'm also very sensitive to the fact that a lot of people saw their loved ones pass away or even in the periphery witnessed, you know, neighbors or people who they went to church with or whatever, you know, get sick and die. I'm very sensitive to the fact that we witnessed a murder, all of us together on our phones or on television with that of George Floyd. And no matter what people try to do, we can act like it didn't affect us. But I think that collectively that witnessing that type of violence and then witnessing the death or experiencing the death of COVID and then experiencing things like January 6th, where our government was almost taken over, right? The the compiling effects of this can lead one to go crazy. And so whichever team I'm working with, whoever I'm mentoring or whatever, I try to be light-handed. I try to be mindful of the fact that I don't know what people are going through and thinking. I, I am a straight shooter, but I think that I'm a straight shooter in that it comes from a place of empowerment. So I'll never belittle somebody. I will never say, oh, you're so stupid, or that was a, that was a misstep. You shouldn't have done that. I'll never be that aggressive, but I will say, you know, there's probably a different way of looking at this thing. Here's what I see. What do you think? Right? So I'm direct in that way. I don't beat around the bush with a lot of things. I do try to protect my own self, right? I think that I am not God. I cannot save everybody. I cannot provide every opportunity to every single person. And some connections that I make for people may not work out. Some projects that I set a goal to meet a deadline for may not work. (laughs) I may not meet that deadline. So I try to be gentle with myself so that I am gentle with other people. Um, And I think that that's where I'm at these days with empowering people, um, no matter where they are, you know, in their phase of life, because we're all at the end of the day human. And um, so we're going to wrap up with a few more questions. Sure. What are some of your professional goals right now? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I wish somebody had told me, you know, the the whole, I, I don't know if you feel this way. I don't know how you look at 40, Jasmine. Um, or if that seems like <laughs> a far, far, far away space. But I know when I was your age, a 40 felt so old. It felt oh, no. so like, you know, like it just felt like this place that was so distant. And like I was going to have all these things in place at 40 and I was going to have a family. I was going to you know, be making out this amount of money, but it also kind of felt like it was, uh, like I was going to be like 40 was old. Right. But I must say that now I'm 41. And so I don't think 41 is old. In fact, life comes, life, life is so fast. You blink and you're 41. You're like, holy cow, how did I get here? But I think to answer your question, there's so much more I want to do. And I, and I, sometimes I feel like I don't have a lot of time, but then other times I'm like, no, you're, you're good. Like you have time. And so I definitely want to re-explore or re-launch some creative podcast, some creative endeavor about not just foreign policy, but the lived experience of those in Washington, D.C. who are trying to make it into the political space, who are trying to make a difference, right? I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out what that's going to look like. I also definitely want to progress career-wise. I'm a deputy director now, so the natural step is a director. And what I would like to do is slightly different than what I'm doing now. I love 
the work that I do and the impact that I make. And I would love to do this in the like philanthropic space where I'm actually providing grants to individuals or organizations that want to make a difference. So I would be like, oh, I know this young woman, Jasmine, who's part of this amazing program. You know, here's some resources for her to expand the work that she's doing, right? I would love to be in that position. And I would also like to do media, right? Now, not necessarily like a journalist or a producer, but certainly like a chief of staff at a media company, right? And being able to leverage all of my different skill sets, creativity, management, business, technology. That's what a chief of staff type of role is for me is good because I am just that I'm, you know, I, I care about lots of different things. I can pretty much do any job anybody asks me to, but I want to stay in a space where I'm talking about global issues. So that's where I see things going for now, you know, the next, certainly the next like you know, five years or so, but definitely we'll continue to pursue more creative endeavors such as podcasting or maybe some YouTube things. I don't know. We'll see. Well, that is amazing. And I also just wanted to ask a question that I like to ask all the people that I talk to. So um, mm -hmm. what is your life philosophy? Oh, yes. You asked me this and I, you know, I can't remember. I'll do your best, I think was what I said. My life philosophy, it, I, it actually goes back to what I was saying about your your great question about how I deal with teams and people. And then I think that it's it's be gentle. The world is harsh already. Intentionally or unintentionally, we are mishandled by people verbally, physically, and in all kinds of professionally. We're environments that often are demanding of our emotions demanding of our psychological presence, demanding of our bodies. You know, if I was an athlete and I, I, I often think about, I was an athlete since 10 years old and I've had three surgeries on my body and I've run marathons and stuff. And so I think about all the things I've done to my body, which is great. You know, I, exercise is good, but you know, sometimes I'm a little achy. <laughs> So I so I'm gentle with my body, right? I I do I do work out. I do a little bit of boxing here and there, just non-contact, non-contact, not no one's hitting my face or anything. So so I but I, I but I I try to remind myself that your body is strong. Be gentle, like you know, don't talk down on your body or the way you look. Don't talk about yourself in terms of how you sound. Like be gentle with yourself in the way you want the world to be gentle with you and be gentle with others because it's it's already such a difficult, harsh, aggressive world. Well, thank you so much, Bumi, um, for taking the time to sit down with the Global Current. It was so much fun to talk to you again about your unique journey and how you're making waves in foreign policy and your helpful insights. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Thank you so much, Jasmine. This has been really good. Thank you. To whoever is listening right now, we are grateful at The Global Current for your support. We may be the crew, but you are the currents that keep the ship afloat. So please follow us wherever you are listening from. And until next time, I'm Jasmine DeLeon the executive director and producer of this podcast.